From South Bend, Indiana, I'm Jacob Titus, and this is South Bend on Purpose. We're in a series of episodes right now from the Studebaker Talks, an event we held last fall in collaboration with South Bend City Church to listen to stories about South Bend's people, ingenuity, and progress. And it was a really special night. It was held at City Church's location, which happens to be a former Studebaker factory floor. We had seven speakers, a sold-out crowd of 250 people, and we raised nearly $3,000 for the South Bend Education Foundation. In case you haven't heard, we're doing it again. So save the date, October 7th, 2022, this year, back at Studebaker Building 112. Speaker submissions will be open during the month of May, and early bird tickets will be available sometime this summer. Today, we're hearing from Joe Molnar, a local demographer, and as many of you will know, the creator of the More People podcast and article series on West SB. Joe is a proud fourth-generation son of South Bend, and he came to the talks to share a belief that Studebaker was only South Bend's prologue, so it's time to give up the ghost. Enjoy. A few months ago, I looked into the life of my great-grandfather. And I found out he doesn't exist. Everybody gets that urge once in a while to dig into their past, to find out where they came from, why they're here. And when I went into this search for my great-grandfather, I knew two things about him. The first was that he was the Molnar who came to South Bend. He was the reason there are Molnars in South Bend. And the second thing was that he died very young in his 30s. So his children didn't know who he was. This is the little family tree. Here I am. And above my grandfather, the first Joseph Molnar, was nothing. We had even lost his name. We didn't know his name. Even though he gave us our last name, my family had forgotten his. We had no memories of him. We had no pictures. Nothing. So, I started digging. And it was a very traditional, it wasn't that hard. It was (laughs) Ancestry.com. Wasn't that hard. So what did I find, right? Well, the very first thing is I found his name. It was actually pretty easy. Alexander Molnar. He seems to have gone by Alex. And once I had his name, it was even easier to find things. I found census records. I found his draft card from World War I. I found his death certificate. And I was able to put together the very basic, faint outline of his life. He came to South Bend in 1906 from Hungary, all by himself as a 17-year-old. He came straight to South Bend, Indiana. At the time, Hungarians were pouring into this city for work. And he lived a very traditional immigrant life for about 20 years before dying. But on those cards, on those census records, on those draft cards, I found addresses. Places where he lived in this city, which is what I was really looking for. I was looking for a connection to this man because I had no connection for my family because they weren't able to give me anything. I wanted to at least go to the house he lived in, maybe see the porch he must have sat at. So I did that. I found the four houses, and this is the first house I found. (laughs) 
Not to be determined, I went to the second house. This is that house today. And then I went to the third house I found. You're sensing a pattern here. And then I went to the fourth house. And this was the one I was really hoping to see because I know he, I think he owned it from what I can tell. And that was the house he was living in when he died. This is that house today. This one's the most depressing because, like, if you're going to tear down houses to put a parking lot in, at least make sure the parking lot gets used. <laughs> Nobody ever parks here. So bummer, right? <laughs> like, that sucked. So I, I, went, I kept looking. I was like, okay, there's got to be more I can find. And I found out he worked at Oliver Plow, just right across the street. Big factory. They actually recruited Hungarians um, because Hungarians were desperate and it was a very dangerous job. And a lot of them got cancer and died in South Bend. But he came and he worked at Oliver Plow for, I think, like almost his entire time here. But then I got to thinking, well, I know the company's long gone, but what did we do with the factory? Did we turn it into apartments? Did we make it offices? Did we reuse it at all? No. <laughs> this is Oliver's factory today. This is where my great-grandfather would have slaved away, essentially, trying to make a better life, trying to achieve the American dream. And this is that factory today. So I couldn't go to where he lived, and I could not go to where he worked, which I assume that was probably 90% of his time, right? What else was there? Well, I thought, what about his faith? I know he was Catholic. I know he was married in the Catholic Church. I know he baptized his three children in the Catholic Church. And I know he died and had a funeral mass at a Catholic Church. In fact, his obituary is only five sentences long. Imagine if your life was boiled down to five sentences. What would you want them to be? Well, faith was important enough to him that one of those five sentences was dedicated to the fact that he was having a Catholic funeral mass at St. Stephen's Catholic Church on the near west side. And this is where that marriage happened I told you about. And this is where his three children were baptized. And this is where his final mass was held before they buried him. His vacant lots circle this church. This church was built by Hungarian immigrants like him for a place of community where they could practice their ancient faith. It clearly meant a lot to him because he stayed very close to it. This is St. Stephen's Catholic Church today. My great-grandfather died in 1924. That was less than 100 years ago. There are people alive today who were alive when he was alive. And his whole life is gone, as if he did not exist. A hundred years isn't that long. I'm not talking about my ancestor from like five centuries, you know, way back in the old country. I'm talking about like the guy who was here less than a hundred years ago. So I got mad. I felt like something had been taken from me. And I got mad at South Bend. I felt like South Bend had taken my family from me, had taken my history from me, right? Because I live in a city where we knock down our houses, where our companies leave us, and where we knock down our churches. And in many ways, this is part of South Bend's story. It's not a pretty part, but it's part of our story. The relationship I have with my great-grandfather mirrors the relationship we have with Studebaker and with Oliver 
and with South Bend Lathe and our past. Because loss is palpable here. You cannot live consciously in this city without noticing the past. You cannot live in South Bend and not imbue that past and the fact that things have dramatically changed in a very short amount of time. And I can give you facts about this. I can give you statistics. I can tell you that we've lost thousands and thousands of people since 1960. This is our population chart from our founding to 2010. It's been downhill for 50 years. I can tell you that we're poorer than we used to be. That when my great-grandfather died, South Bend's median income was twice the national average. Today, it's half. From twice as rich as the country at large to half in a hundred years. Not very exciting. And all those statistics lead to things. They lead to concrete changes to our urban fabric. Our city is littered with vacant factories, or at least the lots where the vacant factories were, where hundreds of people used to have a job, and now they don't. We have vacant storefronts, where a mom-and-pop shop might once, might once have been, or a little grocery store. Or maybe we don't even remember what was there because it's been so long. These litter our neighborhoods. We have giant industrial complexes that have decayed around us, and then it's up to you and me and all of us to pay to knock them down. Because the companies leave, and they deteriorate, and then the city has to eventually pony up the money to knock them down. You live it in our neighborhoods, you live this loss. There's not a single neighborhood today that existed in 1960 that has not lost hundreds, if not thousands, of people since 1960. Not a single neighborhood in South Bend. So then you see things like this, ghost architecture, a staircase to a home where people lived, where people loved, where they had holidays, but they left. And our population shrank, so we had to knock them down. But it wasn't economical to knock down the staircase, so we kept it to remind us of what we lost. You live it. You live this. Even if you don't want to, it is what it is. And it's even more than that, though, because it impacts your day-to-day -day life. It impacts you when your pothole street can't get repaved once every 30 years. It impacts you when every damn year we have to have hard conversations about what school we're going to close next because we don't have enough students in the classroom. And you live it when you're worried that your child's going to move away and take their grand your grandchildren with them because they're not going to find sufficient work here. Pearly, the most recent example. So I was bummed out. <laughs> I probably bummed you guys all out, I'm sorry. <laughs> Willow will come back, I promise. <laughs> so I was bummed out, but because I'm a masochist or because I just enjoy being weird, I went back out to those lots, to those four vacant lots of my great-grandfather's. And I was smacked in the face with what I found. This house. Now, this is just a house. But it's three doors down from where my great-grandfather lived. And this house is perfect. I'm not joking. 
is from the 1880s. It's clearly been recently rehabbed. But it's gorgeous. They've put care and love into this home. And the landscaping. There's not a single blade of grass out of place on this lot. It's, it's crazy. And if anyone knows who lives here, come afterwards and tell me, because I'd like to thank them. But as I was standing there, I saw, I saw it from where my great-grandpa's lot was, and I walked down, I'm like, oh my God, this house has a future. You don't maintain a house like this if you don't think your neighborhood has a future. And as I was standing in the middle of the street, looking like an idiot, staring at a home, two boys walked by, about 10 years old, dribbling a basketball, probably thinking, what's this idiot doing standing in the street? And I overheard their conversation for about 10 seconds. And it was about a girl. They were fighting about a girl. Not like hard, hard, but clearly like, who gets to ask her out kind of stuff. And it was one of those things that happens in a movie, and you're like, that doesn't happen. But like, I had like a eureka moment. I said, here I am, wallowing in the past, being upset about these vacant lots, being upset about what they did to my family, when I have this house staring at me, like, shut up, look at me, I'm beautiful. And then I had the literal future, these children walking by, and they don't care about the vacant lots. They care about the girl. They care about their future with the girl. <laughs> and it reminded me of something that my wife tells me a lot. It's easy to be trapped by the past, especially in a city like South Bend, where the past is around us. We don't live somewhere brand new. We don't live on the edge of Atlanta or on the edge of Phoenix where everything is four years or younger. We live in a city that's gone through some stuff. But with that comes nostalgia for the past. And nostalgia can be dangerous. Nostalgia can be so dangerous because it robs from you the truth. It hides the bad and only gives you the good. And trust me, I know what it's like to be trapped in the past. I wrote a whole article series about it. I spent like a year doing it. I believe the past is important. I believe it's very important to study your past and understand it. But remember, nostalgia is dangerous. You have to try to keep a clear mind about what came before. Because when my great-grandfather died, there were over 350 factories in the city of South Bend. 350 which sounds amazing, right? We would love 350 factories in South Bend today. But each one of those factories put toxic soot and ash and poisoned the air day after day, night after night, because that's what factories did back then. We have written descriptions of the city at the time where there was a haze over the sea, a haze of soot at all times, not just in the factory, everywhere because of these. And we know that if my, my great-grandfather, if he would have lived just three more years, he would have seen my neighborhood get built where I live today. But he couldn't have moved there because there were deeds on the house records. There were deeds. There were covenants on the deeds. Sorry, it's a little legally. There were covenants that said blacks, Jews, and Eastern European immigrants could not own a home in my neighborhood. And we know at the height of Studebaker, at the zenith of our success, when South Bend was one of the fastest growing cities in the country in the 1920s, we know black children were not allowed to swim in South Bend's public pools. Nostalgia is dangerous because it only gives you what you want. 
you have to look at everything. And you also should remember, when, Studebaker, when the Studebaker brothers came here, when Oliver came here, this is what South Bend looked like. It was a small little town on the edge of the western wilderness. And this is a picture of South Bend from the 1860s, and if you zoomed in on this, you would see a lot of vacant lots, because that's why they came here. They came here for those vacant lots and the promise that they present, and the opportunities that those vacant lots presented. And they built a really nice city, full of big, beautiful public architecture to celebrate the city of South Bend. And they put their money in things like the Studebaker Fountain, which we now once again can cherish. And they built their mansions here because they knew South Bend was special, and they knew there was wealth here. But it's not all just to pick a new place, remember? Nostalgia is dangerous. But I think we need to get a little bit about their spirit back. So I challenge you to do three things the next time you see a vacant lot in South Bend, and you're probably going to see one the second you walk out this door. <laughs> think first about the past that was erased. Think about what came before, because that is vitally important. Think about the house, think about the shop, think about the factory, which was there. Then think about the present mistake, the reason we had to tear it down. And there's a lot of reasons you could pick. Think about redlining, which starved our inner neighborhoods of wealth and the ability to build wealth. Suburbanization and white flight out to the suburbs. And deindustrialization, which closed so many factories across cities like ours in the Midwest. But then the last thing I want you to do, after you've done that thought process, I want you to think about the future possibility for that lot. Because time never ends. This city is not ending, and we have to do something about these vacant lots. So think about the house that might go there one day. Think about the shop that might get built there one day. Because the only way we're going to be able to start repaving our streets, and the only way we're going to make it so we can stop closing schools, and the only way we can make it where we can make sure our kids can live here their whole life and be prosperous is if we start filling our vacant lots. And the first step is giving up the ghost. I challenge you to give up the ghost of Studebaker. Do things like we're doing right now, taking this space and reusing it for something beautiful, reusing it for the community, taking the very name Studebaker and reusing it for a positive connotation, because Studebaker was not the end of South Bend. Studebaker was the prologue of South Bend. And I think that when I started this journey of looking for my great-grandfather, I think I was kind of juvenile in what I was looking for. What did I really expect when I went to these houses? Did I think a 150-year-old man was going to walk out and give me a hug? <laughs> People don't live to 150, like, that would be weird. I was looking for something else. I was looking for why I was here and that he existed, right? And I did find Alex. He's been in South Bend this whole time. We just didn't know as a family. He's buried at Highland Cemetery. And it was nice to see his grave. Not going to lie, it was nice. It was nice to finally find something that wasn't a vacant lot. They hadn't paved over that yet. And it was nice to see his name etched in stone. Because things that are etched in stone are real, right? That's what we, we etch things in stone. That's real. But I didn't need this anymore after my little journey. 
because I have these guys. These are my children. And they're the fifth generation of Molnars to live in South Bend. The fifth generation. And they live less than a mile from those vacant lots. And I think if Alex knew today that five generations later, his family was still here, and that these little kids were living their best little life they can, I think he'd be really happy he chose South Bend, Indiana for his home, that he made that trek across the ocean, and it was worth it. I'm really glad he made that decision, too. Thank you. <laughs>